0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 324, and today's guest is Samir Galati, founder and CEO of Ordway. Samir loves SaaS, and it's for good reason. It is expected that the size of the SaaS market may hit almost a trillion dollars by 2030. Yes, the tech industry is having some challenges, but did you know that? Even though the evolution to SaaS started like 20-something years ago, the adoption of SaaS still only sits at a 36% adoption rate versus traditional on-premise software. So there is still such a massive opportunity for growth. Ordway is a billing and revenue automation platform that is specifically designed for today's innovative, technology-centric business models. With Ordway, you can automate billing, revenue recognition, and investor KPIs for recurring revenue from subscriptions or usage-based pricing models. The company is venture-backed by leading VC firms like CRV, Clock Tower Ventures, LyraHippo, and others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep conversation around the current state of the SaaS industry and the evolution of pricing models, Samir's background story and how he joined one of the first SaaS companies called Intact, which exited for a billion dollars, working as part of the early stage team at companies like Workday, Zora, Zynga, Grubbeat, and Spree Commerce, how he leveraged his experience in finance and billing software to disrupt the industry and build Ordway, plus all the details on the company, why it's a bad idea to overcapitalize your company, the importance of being a mission-critical application versus a nice-to-have solution, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any episodes by subscribing to the VentureViz podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Oh, and please don't forget to leave us a review. It really does help us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Samir. Samir, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, Keith, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it was uh, good running into you at a holiday party recently. We had met years before and uh, when we ran into each other again, I'm like, wait, I remember you. So it was uh, one of those friendly faces that you haven't seen probably, you know, before the pandemic type of world, right? So it was good being in a networking event again. (laughs) Yeah,
1: face to face. Uh, It was good running into you again, Keith. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so, I'm excited to talk about your founder journey of the companies that you've built. Uh, but before we get into the whole background story, I, you know, I thought it'd be good to talk about kind of the industry you've been in the world of SaaS for many, many years. Um, so what's the current landscape as it relates to the SaaS industry? Um, you know, there's a lot of noise out there about companies and their ability to raise capital and things like that. So what's, what's the the latest, you know, state of the state.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love SaaS, as you can tell. Uh, I'm still very excited about SaaS, where the industry is, where it's going. Uh, and yeah, it's been a tough, uh, it it feels like it's been a tough year, uh, 2023, with uh, companies not being able to raise capital and things like that. But you know what? Like, I think it's a, it's a blip in the long journey, right? Like the evolution of SaaS that kind of started 20 years ago uh, and I, I recently read a stat that the uh, it, the SaaS penetration is really only like 30, 36%, right? Wow, so, that's yeah. staggering the year. Yeah, so the remaining uh, world still uses the old school software. And even though SAS has been around for 20 years, it's very hard to believe that people use anything but SAS based software these days. There is an entire world out there that still hasn't adopted to SAS and it's growing. Um, Overall, uh, I mean, the same article, which was a lot about uh, research and stats about SaaS, it said that SaaS, current, SaaS spend today is about $150 uh, a year, uh, growing uh, 15 to 20% uh, year over year and expected to cross a trillion dollars in 10 years or so. So that's, think about it, right? Software spend just on SaaS over the, uh, in 2030s would be, a trillion dollars, like so. That's yeah, the yeah. potential that the world. I mean, I'm not. It's just the world of software in general, but Sa mm. delivery platform. I am still very excited about. I think some of the hiccups that we saw uh, in the last year or two are purely a reflection of uh, froth being built up over the years. Uh, uh over capitalization high valuations but valuations are just a means to an end uh, it's the real business under the hood which i feel the industry as a whole is still pretty rock solid and uh, new companies keep uh, producing new solutions uh, uh, to actual problems and uh, i think that is not going to change
0: and and pricing how companies you know charge software companies charge for their SaaS products has been evolving too. I mean, back in the enterprise sales model, it was a big enterprise license that you would buy. And then with SaaS became more subscription-based, but now there's more usage-based pricing models, right? So there's an evolution of how companies are charging for their product.
1: That's right. And if you really think about pricing, right? uh, Pricing is also a means to an end. It's about how do we uh, as vendors make sure that customers are paying for value, right? Like, and it has evolved over the ages, like good old fashioned uh, on-premise license, like a one-time huge license fee to uh, when, when the world moved to SaaS it kind of lowered the barrier that you may not want to pay a huge enterprise license fee upfront, you pay it over time and it made it easy to get in the door in a way, right? Uh, usage-based pricing also has been around in the world of telecoms uh, quite a bit, like telecoms of the world have been using this uh, pay-as-you-go model, you pay for number of minutes at first or gigabytes. So software is now warming up to a similar pricing model and if you really think about it, it really lowers the barrier to entry. Uh, you don't have to pay for a software license if you're not using it, right? You're paying for what you're actually using it. And I think this innovation in pricing, what we call usage-based pricing, is really paying for value, paying for what you're really using. Uh, you know, We are in the business of uh, providing a software that manages subscriptions. We are in the business of Uh, helping companies do both SaaS billing as well as usage-based billing we see this among our customer base as well that uh, you know you really there is really very little barrier to entry take AWS for example like company I remember we started paying for like uh, I think when we first built the very first code we were paying like seven dollars a month you know (laughs) today we are paying like $60,000 $60,000 a month, you know, so AWS nice. is a perfect example, a uh, very low barrier to entry. In fact, they're giving free credits. Hey, $100,000 credits. If you just start using us, uh, you think, oh, wow, 100,000 credits, but it goes by fast. Uh, and now uh, for companies like us, AWS is one of the largest spend. So it's really an innovation in pricing as to like reducing the barrier to entry and making the potential customer feel like you're paying for value. Uh, And uh, net-net, it's a huge advantage for uh, software companies to move to this model. All
0: right, well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child?
1: (laughs) That's a very uh, loaded question. Uh, (laughs) I grew up in India, uh, I'm an army brat. My uh, father was in the uh, Indian army, so we moved about uh, quite a bit growing up, you know, and lived different army towns uh, here and there, uh, but it was great, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it's fun to, it's a good experience growing up when you, uh, when you have to move, like some people might think it's a pain, but I actually really enjoyed it, uh, you know, it broadens your horizon the more experiences you have in life, and I think my upbringing as an army brat uh, gave me a little bit of that. Uh, What was I as a child? (laughs) That also is a very loaded question. Uh, I think my parents would probably disagree with uh, my answer, but I would say I was um, still pretty driven back then as a child still very go-getter. And I think that has shaped my views in life uh, and who who I am today, you know?
0: Well, you studied uh, computer science so how how did you get your career started?
1: Yeah, so I, um uh, yes, I did go to uh, college for computer science, uh, trained as a software developer. And uh, my first job out of college was a software developer. Um, I actually moved to U.S. Uh, right after my engineering. I did my engineering in India and then moved to U.S., uh, uh, I moved to Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, my first job was working for an investment bank, UBS, as a software developer. <laughs> uh, you know, it was fun. Uh, and uh, those were the heydays of investment banking. Uh, um, uh, it was pre dot com bubble era, and uh, investment banking was, I mean, everything was high. You know, like this is cyclical. We're just talking about a SaaS lull over 2023. This is uh, the dot-com era in 1998 as my first job. And things are on a high. And I joined an investment bank. Even the investment bank was on a high uh, during those two years that I worked for them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember that time frame well, the 98 to 2000 timeframe, then obviously things change. But along with those changes, so your next stop was one of the first SaaS companies, right?
1: Yes. So, I think uh, uh investment bank certainly was a good start for my career but being a software person I definitely wanted to be in the world of software uh and I mo- ended up moving to the bay area in california in san jose uh joined intact as a very very early employee you know almost a founding employee uh and yeah I think that at that time the word SaaS did not exist. You know, like if you look at- ASP, right? Application Service Provider. Yeah, it's basically, uh, yes, we were moving to the cloud as we say today, but back in the day, the terminology that people used was, oh, hosted software or internet-based software. Like those were the terminology. Uh, being thrown around. And if you really think about where the word intact comes from, it's internet accounting, right? So, Uh, okay. So it's uh, quite interesting that, uh, and, you know, like, if you look back to the year 2000, there was Salesforce, there was NetSuite, there was intact, maybe there were a few other companies that, uh, you know, in the the days trying to do different things, because there was a huge movement, huge revolutionary movement in the Uh, business of software moving to what we call cloud today, Uh, but uh, it was very, very early days of SaaS and I uh, feel lucky and honored that I got to play a role and get into the industry when it was just, you know, in in its basic stages.
0: All right, so Media Unplugged, was this your first foray into actually starting your own company?
1: Yeah, so... (laughs) Uh, it was, it was I, I wouldn't even call it a company, if I may be honest with you, it was more like a project, right? So um, I uh, definitely had an entrepreneurial itch. Uh, I worked for Intact for six and a half years. Uh, it was a great journey, uh, taking their product to market. And, you know, you may know today Intact has become the de facto mid-market accounting ERP. Uh, got acquired by Sage for almost a billion dollars. So I I feel it was a really fun experience um, going through the foundation of building something that would become big eventually, right? So yes, the entrepreneurial itch made me start thinking about Media Unplugged. So what (laughs) Media Unplugged was, uh, it was an early version of what is now Box or Dropbox or things like that. And, And the problem that I was really trying to solve Uh, again, this is the early days of cloud. Like we don't, we didn't have our smartphones or we didn't have our medias on our phones like we do today, or there was no cloud storage that you could access your data the way you wanted. What I was trying to solve is a personal problem that I had all this music stored on my computer at home. How do I access it while I'm at work, when I'm working? Like just, you know, like you just have to take the files separately with you and you have two different uh copies of the file on two different computers i was just trying to solve a personal problem and i built uh, uh, uh an app uh which would allow me to access my files that are stored on my computer directly online right like early i had an early version of a smartphone one of those big nokia phones you know like you could mm-hmm. flip open and access over the internet so I, I was. it was an experimental project but yeah i mean if i had uh, you know, every entrepreneur has to make mistakes to learn what is right and so forth. My mistake at the time was I couldn't, I I, I didn't have the foresight of the Dropboxes of the world that this could become a huge online storage uh, uh, version and so forth. Right. So, yeah, I think uh, those were some early experimental products that I was dabbling with. Uh, it didn't go anywhere. I built it, I used it for my own personal use, but never really made it a company company you know
0: so <laughs> yeah no there's definitely entrepreneurs trying to solve that problem i've, I've talked to some others where you know it's like okay you have all your music your movies all your digital media your photos uh before everything was in the cloud and spotify's and netflix existed that there was going to be a hub in your basement probably where you could store all this large file data and consume from your tv or uh, whatever stereo or whatever. So it was interesting to see how it eventually turned out because even Steve Jobs said people want to own their music, right?
1: Right. You
0: know, not rent think, it like uh, we do now.
1: I think uh, uh, folks like Aaron Levy from Box, they obviously cracked the code early on and uh, got rolling. Uh, and I'm mm-hmm. super excited. Like nowadays, we don't even have to think about this. It's everything is yeah. in the cloud. We access our files from anywhere, our music from anywhere. It's uh, fascinating, you know, but Yeah. It was uh, it was a fun side project in a way. <laughs> All right,
0: so, so what did you do next?
1: So I uh, decided I need to get a job, right? Like this <laughs> was a, this was a little bit of a experimental project, and I was doing some miscellaneous consulting at the time. Uh, so uh, I've always been excited about finance software, office of the CFO. My entire career has been about uh, solving problems for the finance team. I ended up joining Workday. Workday was a pretty small company at the time too. Uh, uh, Less than 100 employees in Walnut Creek, California. Workday also has grown and scaled to become one of the largest uh, SaaS providers in the world. 70 billion in market cap, 20,000 employees. So another fun journey that I got to experience in the early days. uh,
0: Which again, I mean, a company that was founded by PeopleSoft, right? Executives that, or the founder of PeopleSoft, right? Went on to do Workday,
1: right? Yeah, I I think uh, um, uh, their journey is also quite fascinating. Talk about founder journeys, right? Like um, uh, PeopleSoft got acquired by Oracle in a hostile takeover. Uh, Workday was, uh, I mean, some may argue was like built in vengeance, but it was a great business to start with, right? Like uh, they were already thinking about this inside PeopleSoft of moving software to cloud and the timing was perfect the world is moving to the cloud and uh, ERP softwares are slow to move and adapt. uh, So good timing and uh, obviously the perfect team to do this.
0: All right, what happened next?
1: So I ended up, uh, so billing has always been uh, a passion of mine. And I think I would say that's when I truly took the plunge into the world of billing. Uh, I found uh, this little company called Zora at the time who was trying to solve what i had built for intact internally like we uh we built a billing system in-house for intact trying to solve our own billing needs right we thought it would be a two month project to build a internal tool that would figure out how to build how much to bill our clients ended up being a nine month project and a full-time maintenance nightmare so this is where when we talk to people about build versus buy for example whether you especially internal tools. Do you build internal tools or do you just buy off the shelf? This is an argument that you shouldn't use engineering time to focus on something internal. Engineers are expensive resources and they should always be used to build uh, commercial products that you're selling in a way, right? So this is where I saw this little company trying to solve the problem. I got excited uh, when they reached out to me and I met the uh, CEO. I got even more excited and uh, decided to go join them Uh, and Zora was the first uh, subscription billing platform at its time, uh, um, uh, early days of subscription billing. And yes, again, a trend in software as the world is moving to the cloud, the need for cloud billing, subscription billing in particular, just uh, went up. Even we saw this in the consumer world, uh, like in the Netflixes of the world, right? Netflix. Uh, prior to Netflix people used to just like buy DVDs right like nobody buys DVDs anymore right Right. so it was a complete shift of paradigm and uh, disruption of an entire industry by simply moving to a subscription model so uh, when when companies started moving to subscription models there was a billing need and Zora was well placed good timing Uh, and I again was fortunate to see uh, and build uh, one of the first commercial-grade billing products. So billing has always been my passion, and I think I've done a lot in billing, which is something you won't see on LinkedIn. Uh, I've also, in the early days, uh, met with the founders of Recurly, for example, and uh, spent some time with Aria Systems uh, uh, to help them think through their billing needs and so forth. So I've generally, even before I started Ordway, and we'll come to that, uh, I... Uh, it's just a passion that I've been pursuing. In fact, uh, how I, so, you know, one of the next jobs I took was with Zynga, which is really a gaming company, the entire uh, uh, shift to me trying out a consumer product when all my career I worked for enterprise uh, software was really about billing, you know, like one of the things that I saw in the world of billing, we had a lot of gaming customers, you know, uh and the, the kind of billing they used to do in the world of gaming was quite fascinating so i uh that's how i started looking into the world of gaming uh and at that, that time i also moved to uh, dc from the bay area so i left zora to move to dc for family reasons and uh, started looking at okay what else uh, to do next and uh because of my Uh, uh, increased interest in the world of gaming, especially around their billing needs, I found uh, Zynga and ended up joining Zynga. And this was a little bit of a shift. Uh, I wanted to try out what it is to be a product owner of a consumer product rather than an enterprise software uh, and uh, got to experience some fun. uh, 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 Yeah, like games are fun from the outset, outset, but it was fun to take a consumer product to market and see how you know, in enterprise software, you have like a few hundred customers, but in the world of gaming, you have millions of customers. And the game that I uh, got to build and take to market, uh, Frontierville, it was called, uh, it's no longer there, which is also the nature of consumer software. It shuts down after a while. (laughs) In In the case of games, I think the average lifespan is one year. The game exists for a year, and then the next game has to fulfill the revenue. So that's that was my journey at Zynga, uh, learning how to take consumer products to market, thinking uh, how to do product management for uh, mass uh, scale user base of 37 million monthly users, uh, uh, You know the A-B testing and figuring out what their needs are and so forth.
0: And what do you think you gained from that consumer experience of scaling to 37 million yeah. monthly active users? Because that's obviously, oh. like you said, different from what you were doing
1: well, the first thing I learned from my experience is how much I love enterprise
0: software.
1: (laughs) How much I wanted to go back to enterprise software. (laughs) So it was was good learning overall because uh, when you are talking about that level of scale of users, uh, you can't just talk to a customer and figure out what their needs are. Like you have to rely on data. You have to rely on data to tell you a story about what your users are asking for and how do you make decisions based on that data. But yeah, i think personal biggest learning was i want to go back to enterprise software because that's my passion mm-hmm.
0: all right so what happened next
1: so uh after i left Zynga, i uh, again entrepreneurial itch has always been there i uh, looked into solving another problem for restaurants uh, and uh uh one of the problems still exists today to be candid with you is the amount of time it takes to close out your tab at the end of the meal, basically, right? So I uh, came up with an idea and I built this app with the help of a few developers that we could um, uh, just manage our tab. Like, I mean, now with COVID and everything, you see this barcode in on the table, then people scan their menus, you could theoretically even order from your phones nowadays. Uh, uh, but it was, again, a little bit ahead of its time, right? Like uh, the, the success of, products and businesses, right place, right time, We're a little bit ahead of its time in a way, I would say. Uh, and the other challenge that th- this is a lesson for all founders, uh, you know, we. I'm a tech guy, I'm a product person. You can build a product, but you really need to know how to scale and distribute to grow a business, right? I think in, the, in this case, uh, we are t- selling to restaurants and I'll be the first to candidly admit, I did not know anything about how to scale and sell to restaurants, right? We had to figure all of that, but that's part of the entrepreneurial journey. You just have to figure things out, right? There is no playbook on how to take a new idea to market. You just have to figure it out, right? You have to hustle and figure it out. So I I tried it. I ran into some hurdles. Uh, the hurdles that at the time were um, to for your phone to interface with the point of sale system. The companies, the the big companies back in the day were like Microsoft of the world. You needed additional licenses to allow any API access or any app to communicate with the point of sale system, and that uh-huh. was a source of friction uh, between the restaurant and adoption of this because now they had to pay an extra fee to buy this license from the uh, point of sale company. So some of I learned right like as we as we built the product, we were trying to scale. Uh, we learned that there are some sources of friction. And the right way to solve that friction is what the toasts of the world have done. They created. Mm-hmm. It.
0: I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> toast figured out how to disrupt that whole world of micros and point of sale system. So,
1: exactly. So, I think yeah. that was needed for for what we were trying to do, we really needed a more modern point of sale system, which was more cloud friendly, API friendly, uh, and uh, and would allow us to build apps on that. So that was a learning too, where like, I think uh, uh, my learning was like, a lot of people try to build apps on top of a platform, uh, but it's nothing like being the platform. Then you own your mm-hmm. destiny and you own the uh, ecosystem. and And frankly, some of those learnings we have applied Uh, in our current journey at Ordway um, and we'll get to that too for sure so yeah this was about there and you know like again this was not really a company company it was more like an experimental project I kind of did it for three to six months you know built a product uh, built a uh, set up a prototype in a couple of restaurants but quickly learned the the shortcomings uh, that the industry had at the time to scale it and realized I'm not the right person to do this you know uh and i need to go back to a good old software w- world mm-hmm. of software and do that so that's where i found uh spree commerce uh, it was a young company at the time uh we were doing e-commerce automation. Uh, um great idea you know like early days of shopify was uh, uh pretty much what we were trying to do as well so we got acquired by first data very early in our journey like we were like 20 people in the company and we got acquired by First Data. And uh, as part of the acquisition, I was uh, uh, their VP of products for all global e commerce initiatives. And I stayed on for three years helping them uh, build out. Uh, so, First Data is a payments company. They, the whole thesis of acquisition was to build online products and take First Data to e commerce. So, that's the journey that happened after uh, Spree Commerce and we got acquired by First Data, which is now Fiserv.
0: Got it. Okay. All right, Ordway. So let's talk about the company that you've been building. How did the idea come to fruition initially?
1: Yeah, so I, um, uh, while at First Data 2, you know, I was spending a lot of time uh, doing some angel investing here and there, uh, you know, meeting other founders, uh, talking to a lot of companies on what they're trying to solve. Like, I've always loved the startup ecosystem. I've always loved... uh, the problems that entrepreneurs try to solve Uh, and uh, what i began to realize that uh, the world of financial software is still very very old school and is ripe for disruption you know and got me thinking i know this world i mean i spent uh, an entire career in this world so why hasn't it been solved Uh, why haven't uh, zora's of the world or uh, recurrence of the world not solved the core billing problem that companies face, right? And I think uh, as, through market research, it was quite evident that uh, billing is evolving, right? Like as you, as we discussed we, at the start of our conversation, the SaaS has moved to more consumption style billing. So billing has also evolved. And this is a problem, not just with some early legacy billing systems, but this is a problem with enterprise software as a whole. Uh, you know, when companies get started, there are entrepreneurs who see a problem and they try to build a solution to solve that one little problem. And most of the time software is built like uh, a patchwork, right? Like it's a box. It's a box to solve that specific problem. If you fit in the box, it works for you. But the moment you start outgrowing your use cases, things begin to fall apart. And the enterprise software world, the legacy enterprise software world is a lot of bolt-ons, patchwork, like, if you ask the uh, software company for a new feature, they'll be like, "Yeah, let's uh, let's do this. Uh, let's uh, add it to our roadmap. We'll add a couple of uh, engineers, write some code for it, and we will enhance it." Right. So this is the problem which we saw uh, in the world of billing also, where a lot of companies were struggling with their billing. They still are. Uh, you know, it was pretty manual. Uh, we are talking about a world where everything is getting automated but uh, the world of finance is so manual and inefficient that there are still companies where people are sitting in front of a computer typing it in printing it out stuffing it in an envelope licking the envelope mailing their invoices and so forth right like think about how inefficient the whole business uh, process back office process is and it's often uh, un- it's 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 often uh, overlooked because Uh, most companies in the early stages are always focused on top-line growth. They just want to grow revenue, right? They're not really thinking about uh, inefficiencies in the world of back office and things like that. So that is how the idea of Ordway was formulated, that the world needs a new enterprise software platform, and the world needs an absolute disruption of the whole uh, order-to-revenue process. A software process which would automate the order-to-revenue uh, process, and 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 that's how the journey of Ordway was born. Under the hood, we wanted to build a platform, and frankly, that's our differentiation too. Under the hood, we built a, a platform which is more like Lego blocks for software. You can piece it together and build any workflow on top of it. But at a high level, uh, like if you really think about the journey of a company, a sales rep closes a deal. And it's very excited that I close the deal and then they hand it over to a finance person. Most of the time, they're handing over the, to the finance person manually, including a manual piece of paper that this is the contract, right? Now, it's my, it's my, my job is done. It's your problem. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, we see that the finance team struggles with that contract month after month. What was promised in the contract? How much to bill? how to recognize revenue, uh, what were the terms promised for payments, like they're struggling. And our vision is at a very basic, simple level is like, hey, if the sales rep knows how the deal is going to be executed over a multi-year contract, why should finance struggle, right? So to some extent, our order to revenue starts at the time of sale, we plug it into sale. Uh, This is the real innovation and differentiation uh, we did. And As we talked about my journey over the last 20 years, the biggest learning was do something that you know well. And I really knew the domain of enterprise software, the world of billing, the world of uh, office of the CFO software, and also how to distribute it. So I think we had all the bells and whistles to uh, 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 create a company around this. And that's how Ordware was born. We we found a few early customers uh, to do beta with. Uh, and that's basically how uh, then after that, I went and raised uh, capital and started scaling the business.
0: And did you start out with those initial customers, like with a piece? Because obviously your platform does a lot now, but was it like, hey, we're going to focus on this initially and then start to broaden?
1: Yeah, I think uh, to some extent, uh, the journey of our software was really driven by uh, the pain points that some of the customer early customers were facing. Right. So we I set out with a really broad vision initially, uh, which may be the vision of the future too, but initially it was a really broad vision that the entire ERP space is ripe for disruption. But that was a that is a more ambitious vision, you know. Uh, but after talking to a lot of customers uh, or, you know, a lot of companies, I did about 30 or 40 market research interviews, if I may be honest, right? Like spe- uh, speaking to friends who run companies or, uh Executives uh, in the companies, like, what is your pain point? And the pain point kept circulating around billing, about revenue leakage, about missed invoices, about incorrect uh, invoices, and especially subscription billing, like SaaS billing, recurring billing scenarios. And you, then it really got you to think, like, what? Why uh, is this still a problem? So yes, the first version of the software, we had narrowed it down to just solve billing needs and find, we kind of just built a company around it. And uh, I had um, uh, I had a couple of uh, folks who were more than willing to be uh, beta customers, uh, you know, like typical product management. We built out some um, visual uh, uh, screens to show like, hey, this is how we would solve your problem and uh, validated the ideas before we wrote a single line of code, you know, and that's where I decided to just put in a little bit of money, hire some developers, start building, and we built an early working prototype. Got some customers on it, and and we scaled from there. You know.
0: And at what point did you uh, you know decide to raise your Series A? When
1: we decided to uh, when we started getting customers through core campaigns, that's when I knew this was a real business. You know, like initially, you ask people you know friends. Uh, hey, uh, do you have a pain point? Would you be willing to try the software out? And uh, uh, at there came a point where like let's test our uh, we have a couple of customers using the software. Let's go out and uh, uh, you know start getting more customers. So we did a marketing campaign around the country, uh, reached out to uh, a bunch of um, uh, companies uh, you know like typical cold cold outreach, uh, and we got a couple of responses back. In fact, the day we ran the campaign, I got a response back the same day uh, from a CEO of a company in LA that yes, we are having major billing problems I would love to discuss, you know? And by evening we were on the phone and we we hit it off. I mean, he, he they were a startup too. We were a startup and as a founder to founder, we connected uh, and this was a complete cold outreach. Three weeks later, we had a signed contract uh, of uh, 25K a year Uh, which was big at the time, you know, like, like, you know, first gold contract, it was a good start to the, and, you know, they're still a customer and one of our largest customers today, they've grown, uh, you know, multiple fold from uh, the early days of Fordway. Uh, So that's basically, uh, we got them and we got another company uh, based in New York. Uh, so we got three or four customers through our cold outreach, we are like, this is a real business. And we had revenue uh, being generated before we even raised first outside capital. So that was our journey. Like when we went to investors and we showed, here is the problem we are trying to solve. We have a real business, we have real paying customers and not just friends and family. These are cold outreach uh, customers that we acquired. Uh, we did not have uh, too much trouble raising some seed capital to take the company further.
0: Got it. Okay. So fast forward to where you are today, as far as you know, the platform and just overall company.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's been uh, it's been five and a half years now, almost six. We have a very mature platform. Uh, uh, we uh, we have uh, we are a key player in the order to revenue space or Uh, You can call it subscription management space. And, you know, like uh, I I certainly view us as disruptors. We have certainly been um, um, displacing uh, some legacy software companies built two decades ago uh, and putting our software in place. But also this world is so big. The world of uh, billing spend alone is so massive that uh, uh, I feel super excited about the future of hardware and where we can go uh, over the next few years.
0: And what, like, what's like? There's obviously competition in the space. So, how do you position yourself as it relates to you know other companies in the space?
1: So I think uh, uh, a lot goes back to the foundation, right? Like, um, if you if you look at the word billing, you would think that uh, why is billing a problem, right? Billing is not a new problem. Billing is a five thousand year old problem uh you know even 5000 year uh, years ago you had to trade you had to pay for things through different means right but with the evolution of time and the evolution of software in particular uh the the uh, um the, the ways of like we were discussing pricing scenarios the ways of pricing definitely has changed so our strength is definitely in usage based billing but we can absolutely do run of the mill saas billing all day long uh, but when you talk about uh, competition, there isn't much. Billing is a really complex software to build. And you might think that a lot of people do billing, but like I was saying, a lot of people do point solutions, right? There are a lot of companies who have solved one problem or the other. There are a lot of companies who would simply try to solve a Netflix-style billing, $5 a month plan, like, or in other words, direct-to-consumer subscription billing, right? But in the world of B2B billing, there are just three or four names we keep seeing over and over again. There's not a whole lot of noise, which people don't understand because they just think, oh, billing, maybe like a lot of people do billing, right? Even ERP companies might say they do billing, but they don't really do billing. They, mm-hmm. You can sit in front of a computer, you can type in an invoice and send it out, but then you can do that with a uh, $10 a month software too. So we are in the world of automation. I think that's our differentiation and what makes us different from some of the noise or some of the competitors out there is really the flexible framework that we have built. Like I was uh, sharing earlier, uh, we can solution any workflow. We challenge the world, come to us and tell us what your current software or current process is not able to automate for you. What remains manual and inefficient and we can automate it for you. So that's our message to the world and challenge to the world. Come and challenge us and we will show you how our software will be used to Uh, automate your world. And that's quite a bold statement. And we have successfully uh, got hundreds of customers now, you know, paying us. And like, if you think about what we do, we are a mission critical software, right? Like we sit in these uh, at the center of a company's back office operations. Like if billing is not working, the business is not working, right? So uh, and as a startup, initially, you have to build that brand, you have to build that credibility. But now we have uh, billion dollar companies, publicly traded companies using Ordway as their mission critical billing backbone to solve uh, order to revenue. So uh, we are very proud of what we have built and continue to build and move forward. And I think that is really what has differentiated from the noise, our ability to customize. And frankly, there's a lot more to do. Like I think, uh, you know, we are in the, we, we, there's so much buzz around AI and we have barely scratched the surface on. The potential of ai in the world of billing so there is a, a lot that we still have to do uh, you know this is just the beginning in my opinion
0: yeah i mean obviously the ai buzzword is everywhere but the use case for what you're building certainly seems very logical
1: yeah yeah absolutely um, and i think um, uh, the, the the name of the game for us really is automation right like uh, we we have companies who have been able to scale their businesses from 10 million in ARR to 200 million in ARR without adding too many more people in their finance back office team, right? Like So that's the promise. If you think about it, uh, you're paying for software to automate something, but you can really scale the business and be more efficient. Uh, and don't need an army of minions to really uh, send your invoices out, collect money on it uh, and recognize revenue, you know, the uh, and your analytics, the whole nine yards. All
0: right. So we talked about some of your lessons learned from past companies, consumer. So what um, what have been some of the biggest lessons learned while building Ordway?
1: Oh, boy, that. Uh... Can be a book in itself. <laughs> so, uh, I uh, I think there are a lot of lessons, and frankly, even the last one or two years uh, would teach a lot of lessons to founders and entrepreneurs to not overcapitalize the company. Also, right? Like, so at the end of the day, we are building a business. We are building a solution to a problem. If you if you keep it simple uh as a company right like uh like especially i'm speaking from a founders entrepreneurs perspective uh we saw a problem we went after solving that problem right uh like uh like you have to get certain unit economics right before you go out and raise hundreds of millions in venture capital and start spending like there is no tomorrow right uh because like we saw in the last year or two there will be tough times and that capital will evaporate right so Focus on building uh, a core business. Focus on building something that your customers absolutely love, uh, and because your customers are going to be your best sales reps, uh, they are the ones who are going to be do reference. Especially in in our world of enterprise software, they're going to be reference, uh, uh, referenceable customers for future customers, and that's how you scale. That's how you grow the business and always listen to your customers, right? I think this is a cliche that you're like, why would you not listen to your customers? But you know what? Like a lot of companies don't. They get so caught up in day to day that they are just not able to change. Like why uh, Kodak uh, went bankrupt after being in business for 100 years? They just didn't listen to the market. They just had their own vision. Digital cameras? Who cares about digital cameras? Who needs digital cameras? You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, uh, it is no different. This is why companies keep getting disrupted. Um, But even startups don't succeed many times because they don't do simple things like listen to your customers. Build something that your customers absolutely love. Don't just chase venture capital for... You need capital to grow the business, no doubt. But you need to... um, I think... I think um, a different way of saying it is uh, uh, get small wins before you go go for the big home run, you know, get small hits uh, and before you decide to swing it out of the park, basically.
0: Well, I think another key point that you brought up in a very subtle way, but I wanted to highlight is you said, we're a mission critical application. There's lots of software out there that when CFOs, controllers are looking to slash budgets, there's a lot of stuff they can just be like, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. Not a mission critical application though.
1: Yeah. So that's definitely in our favor. We are a sticky software solution. Uh, If we do a good job, there shouldn't be many reasons to rip us out. Uh, And uh, doing a good job is also listening to your customers and being there for them when they need you, uh, you know, and I personally also, am never afraid to get on a plane, to go see a customer. If I sense there is a little sensitivity, you know, or even without, you know, just to build the relationship.
0: All right. Well, you had mentioned that you uh, have been involved in making your own angel investments. So how did you get involved in doing that? And what advice would you have for others in terms of dipping your toes into uh, the angel investment waters?
1: Sure. Um, I think just like starting a company, there is no straightforward playbook to angel investing, right? Like to some extent, most investors have to make certain mistakes to understand what their investing appetite is. Uh, To start with, angel investing is an extremely high-risk investing uh, framework. And most people need to understand this, that you see, uh, it's easy to get carried away uh, hearing that some person invested like $25,000 in Facebook in the early days and made 40 million out of it, right? That's, those are rare and um, uh, that's just luck, dumb luck. That's like playing the lotto, right? So uh, angel investing, uh, you have to go in with the mindset that uh, yes, there can be huge returns, but it's also high risk. Uh, You should be willing to put only that amount of capital that you may not, may not see ever, you know, Uh, even if you see, a return on that capital. It'll be years before you get a return on that capital. So uh, certainly go in with the mindset that uh, this is not some money that you need. Uh, And you could be wise about it. Like you can't go into angel investing with just, hey, I'm going to do one angel investing and hopefully I get 40 million out of my $25,000 investment. You have to have a diversified portfolio, right? Like uh, like think how VCs think, how uh, professional investors think. They don't put money in one company. They so you start with like what is your appetite to do angel investing? How would you carve out that portfolio among a series of companies? Uh, and then what is the kind of company you would be comfortable investing in? You know, like I, I I'll 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 be candid about my uh, my appetite of investing too. And everybody has different appetite of investing, right? I started off angel investing and i was investing in a lot of very very early stage companies uh, and early stage companies are the most uh mo- most risky companies right like they're the ones who are still dabbling with ideas they may not go anywhere and so forth and things like that i i learned about my own risk appetite in some from some of the early investments and i no longer do very very early stage uh in uh, angel investing i actually wait for companies to hit certain milestones, have some revenue uh, proof. So you, yeah, you get in at a higher valuation, but it's less, risk, uh, it's less risky, let's put it that way. At least they have a real business at that particular point. Your return would be smaller, but maybe more guaranteed. So that's where you need to learn about your own risk appetite as an investor, which is why even in the world of professional investing, you see certain firms focused on very early stage investing and certain firms focused only on very late investing, right? So it's all about uh, a model, a risk appetite that everyone builds out. uh, And I over time have built out my own risk appetite on what I'm comfortable with.
0: Now you're based out of the Washington DC area. So what's the startup scene like down there?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's growing. It's not uh, as big as what you hear in San Francisco, New York or Boston. Uh, uh but it's still a very vibrant uh, tech community uh, you know like the tech community here has its roots in dif- uh, defense contractors right like there's a lot of business here in defense contracting but uh, that also leads to innovation that also leads to startups and um, uh, and certainly um, uh, I, like in the 10 years that i've been i've been in the dc area for 14 years uh, in the last ten years or so, I've certainly seen the ecosystem take off. There are a lot of people like me who came from Silicon Valley over here. Or, excuse me, uh, from Silicon Valley here too. But uh, you know, there are smart people everywhere. Let me put it that way. So there, there's uh, there are smart people everywhere who are going to try and uh, solve uh, problems and build solutions to those problems. So it's it's growing quite a bit, and we have seen some really big companies come out of the DC area too in the last uh, few years. Still, I would say it's smaller than the big cities, but uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's good.
0: How about a book or podcast recommendation for, for other founders?
1: Yeah. You know, um, um, two of my favorite books are like, I, I read a lot of business books, but uh, two of the books that I read early in my life or career has stuck with me. They're, they're not recent books, but they've stuck with me. I think One of them is a tipping point from Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I actually use that book as uh, a coaching guidance even for my employees. Like there are a couple of concepts in the book that he talks about. Uh, it's a concept of 10,000 hour rule. Like you don't really become an expert in anything until you have put 10,000 hours into it as an example, right? So I really like that book, uh, Tipping Point uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. And another book that I read, uh, I've read it that book multiple times, is Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Uh, it's a very old book, uh, Stephen Covey's book, but I just love that book. And uh, the principles of that book are quite foundational.
0: All right. What do you like to do for fun outside of work?
1: Oh, you know, there is not much time for fun as a founder CEO, but i uh, but you got to have a balance. That's true. I have a small family. I have a wife and uh, an eleven year old daughter, so I spend a lot of time with the uh, family. and uh, I like playing golf uh, whenever I can. It's hard living in the city. you have to it's a it's a it's a game that requires a lot of time investment, but whenever I can, I love to do that um so yeah like just the usual you know go out for dinners with family hang out um you know the usual
0: very cool Well, samir thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story obviously all the great companies that you've been involved in of course what you're up to now with ordway and all the great advice
1: yeah thank you keith appreciate having me and i uh, enjoyed the candid chat <music>